0: Welcome, good morning everyone, my name is John Fairchild, I'm on the elders board here at Grace uh, and uh, it's my privilege to bring us the message this morning. A little uh, announcement to bring you up to speed on something um, uh, in the church. uh, The leadership board has uh, agreed to hire me on for 10 hours a week to do some shepherding and care work and uh, to lead uh, prayer ministry in the church. And I'm very happy to do that, and uh, that's sort of what's on my heart these days. I am retired, but just going to devote a few hours to, uh, to uh, that type of ministry. Also, I, I really love to connect with newcomers and people who are newer to Grace. Often you have questions about the church, about its history, its background, its beliefs and positions and ministries and leadership and things like that. I can help answer those questions uh, And uh, we could meet for coffee, uh, or uh, chat in the hallway, or I could come to your house and give you, you know, more information, whatever, whatever you like. Uh, And uh, so let's uh, let's make a date sometime with the newcomers and uh, just help to integrate you into the church and who we are, what we stand for, etc. And uh, and prayer is on my heart. I lead Monday night prayer times online, and. also we're going to be starting up soon a prayer team on Sunday mornings uh, where we'll have uh, a couple of people available after each service uh, to o- to offer an opportunity for anyone here who would like to pray about something big or small in your life just come forward and sit down and pray together, and then you can be on your way but uh, we'll we'll be organizing that and providing that for you as well so so uh, that's just uh, bringing you up to date on uh, on that uh, <clears throat> Work that I will do in uh, shepherding, care, and prayer. Um, <clears throat> this morning we're giving Ken a break. He's been—we're we're wearing the guy out. Uh, he's been—he's been preaching, except for one uh, Sunday off since the end of October. And Ken, we have appreciated immensely the words that you've been bringing to us. <clears throat> and. Uh, we look forward to going forward together with you as well, So, uh, but uh, I'll uh, give a message this morning, and um, it'll be uh, fun to, I, I kept telling people all week, I think I've forgotten how to preach, <coughs> not sure if I ever really knew, but uh, we'll, uh, we'll uh, talk this morning, we're starting a new series called Eight Days That Changed the World, um, from and, and this is the last week of Jesus' ministry in Jerusalem before he went to the cross and rose from the grave. So day eight is the resurrection Sunday morning, and uh, we're, we, you, if you read carefully in the gospel scriptures, you can you can pretty well pinpoint what was happening on each day of the week. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Of course, uh, Friday was Good Friday, the cross. Saturday, Jesus lay in the tomb. That will be day seven. Day 8 will be Easter. Day 1 is the day that Jesus entered Jerusalem into this final week, often called the Triumphal Entry, or sometimes called Palm Sunday. So that's what I'm talking about this morning, Uh, and uh, we'll read a passage about that right now. It comes out of John 12, and, and then we'll add on another short passage out of Luke 19. All four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, cover this event. Uh, Not often do all four Gospels cover every event, but this one they all cover because it's a watershed moment when Jesus, uh, who had been doing ministry all over uh, the northern area, Galilee and uh, uh, the Jordan area, now comes into Jerusalem, and it's a changing watershed moment where uh, something is launched that is literally going to change the world. And, uh, And so we'll look at day one here today. But first of all, let's read those passages. John 12. I'll read from the screen. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it as it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. And then a passage from Luke 19. It's just near the end of the same event. Luke writes these words, As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls, They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Lord, those are sobering words. There's so many emotions embedded in this passage. We thank you for these scriptures inspired by your spirit. Your word encourages our hearts, it corrects our wrong thinking, and best of all, it reveals Jesus to us. Use it now to speak to our hearts this morning we pray. Amen. Amen. As I said, we've just read a watershed moment when Jesus enters Jerusalem for the last time. You know what? There's a there's a historical context to this event. It doesn't just sit there in the middle of nowhere. There are years preceding this event and years after. So I'm going to, for the first half of the message, uh, dig into the historical context a little bit and explain some things like the donkey's colt and the palm branches and the and the crowd, etc., and uh, try to understand a little more of what's going on here, uh, and then we'll draw some lessons out at the conclusion of the message this morning. So we'll pick some words and phrases out of the John 12 passage in that uh, That passage can be kept up on the screen there, uh, Ryan. Thank you. We'll read the first verse again. It said, The next day the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem, and they took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting. Let's just stop there for a moment. What is this festival? The great crowd that had come for the festival The other gospel writers specify that it's the festival of the Passover feast. Uh, The Passover feast was celebrated once a year. It uh, It was a celebration and a remembrance of the Exodus, which had happened about 1,400 years before this, way back in the time of Moses. Remember that the people of Israel were captives and slaves in Egypt, a foreign country. Uh, They were abused there and subservient to to the Egyptians, but God broke them out, you might say. They escaped and they exited, and that was the exodus out of Egypt. Moses was their leader. God performed the ten plagues to humble and break the Egyptians, and then he led them through the Red Sea, all that famous story. That was the greatest event in all of Israel's history to this point. It really was. That was the high point. And so the Passover, they came together to celebrate it once a year. Very important to remember, as it is for us to remember. We break bread, and we remember the greatest event in our understanding of, of Christ and God's work in the world, the cross and the empty grave. And so uh, that was the, uh, the Passover event, was the Super Bowl of, uh, of the uh, Israelite. Not that I'm thinking about the Super Bowl or anything today. Uh, <coughs> go 49ers. Anyway... Um, uh, but uh, this was a big event, very big. I'll explain a little bit more here. Secondly, it says in this passage, the next day, watch the great crowd that had come for the festival. Let's talk about the great crowd for a moment. It was a great crowd. You know, I've watched uh, a lot of movies about Jesus over the years, uh, you know, those British movies and everything. And, and uh, <clears throat> um, I think when you see this scene, I'm trying to remember, but... Uh, Maybe the crowd has 100 or 200, maybe 300 people in it. Uh, A lot more than that. Um, Matthew 21, when he describes this event, Matthew refers to it as, quote, a very large crowd. In Matthew 21.10, a little later, it says the whole city was stirred by the coming of Jesus. The whole city was sort of awakened when he came. Mark 11 calls it many people. Luke 19 calls it the whole crowd. And in our passage here, John 12, 12 calls it, calls them, describes them as the great crowd. How big was the crowd? Well, we don't know, of course. They lined the streets. They were celebrating the arrival of Jesus at Jerusalem, finally coming from up north in Galilee. But uh, there's a a famous is. Jewish historian named Josephus. You might have heard of him. He wrote uh, during the first century describing events in Israel, in Jerusalem, and of the Roman uh, occupation of the land. And uh, Josephus described uh, a Passover event once, one that occurred in A.D. 64. So if Jesus died in A.D. 33, this was 30 years later, but it was another annual Passover event, and Josephus took it upon himself to to describe and try to estimate the size of the crowd. And he came up with a number of of people all around in Jerusalem who had come for the big feast to be 2.7 million. That was his estimate. Was it for sure? Don't know. But it was a great crowd, for sure. Remember when the Raptors won the, the, the basketball championship in 2019, and they had the parade in downtown Toronto? Remember that great crowd? The whole city was paralyzed, and the parade was four hours late. There was just too many people to get through. There's a picture of a great crowd now. How many were waiting for Jesus? Not two million, probably, but a sizable number. Would it have been 50,000, 100,000? Very, very possibly. 200,000? It was a great crowd. So get the feel for what's going on here. And when great crowds gather, sometimes things can happen. <clears throat> the Pharisees looked at all this, and they said, as we read, look, the whole world has gone after him. And they were not happy to say that. That was the feeling they had. We've lost it. We've lost control of, of our position and of our, of our great faith. And this imposter who they viewed Jesus as, uh, everybody's going after him. This is terrible. Third thing to look at, it says that uh, in our passage here, in verse 12, it says, Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. The other gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, talk about Jesus, uh, say that Jesus entered Jerusalem. There's something about the moment he entered the, crossed the city boundary and entered into the city of Jerusalem, that uh, something significant happened right there, and I want us to notice that as well. Have you ever heard the phrase, the crossing of the Rubicon? It's uh, out of Roman history. I'll give you a little historical tidbit here. It happened, uh, Julius Caesar was the one who crossed the Rubicon, the Rubicon was a little river, probably about the size of the speed. Not a, not a great river or anything like that. But it was in the northeastern part of Italy. And uh, Julius Caesar and his army crossed the Rubicon in, um, before Christ, 49 B.C., in January. That's historically validated. And uh, what was going on was that Julius Caesar uh, had been a, a, a very successful, very ruthless conqueror in what we would now call France, what was then called Gaul. And he conquered the whole area of Gaul and the whole Roman Empire was hearing about it and were amazed. But uh, because of his great power and some of the things he was saying, the the authorities in Rome and in the Senate, led by Pompey, were worried about Julius Caesar and what was he up to because they heard he was coming back to Rome with his army. And uh, (coughs) When he got to the Rubicon, that was kind of the boundary line between outside Rome and inside Rome. And, uh, and so he, when he crossed the Rubicon, the significant thing was that he brought his army with him. It's okay to cross that river, but you don't bring your army with you. You leave them outside of Rome. If you bring your army, you have evil intent. And Julius Caesar brought his army, a civil war ensued, and he, in the end, became the dictator of the Roman Empire. When you speak of crossing the Rubicon, it's an irrevocable moment. There's no turning back. You're all in. Away you go. And when he crossed the Rubicon, everybody knew things are going to change here. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, he was crossing the Rubicon. He was coming into Jerusalem. He'd been to Jerusalem many times before. He was there as a lad when he was 12 years old. We remember that story. To the feast of the Passover, and he probably came every year, in and out, in and out, visiting Jerusalem, coming to the feast. But this time was different, because the whole context was different. The whole nation was, was different, and we'll explore that as we go along. Uh, the, the religious authorities, when they, when they heard that Jesus was coming, they were nervous. When he entered the city, it was to them a declaration of war. That fact shapes the next eight days of his life in Jerusalem. Now, let's look at the palm branches, the young donkey, and the Hosanna chant. All right, These these all have kind of a a context to them as well. The people, it says, were waving palm branches. John 12 does tell us that. And uh, there's a history behind the palm branches. Are you ready for a little more history here? Um, I I hope it's helpful. Palm branches used to be used in the many years of history of the Israelites on the Feast of Tabernacles, which was in the fall. This event is happening in the spring. Uh, and they would, they would use palm branches to build little, little makeshift huts to, to remember days when they lived in, in tents in the, in the wilderness, that sort of thing. So they were a symbol of their journey. But this use of palm branches was different. And uh, the history happened between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. And that was a 400-year period between the end of Malachi and Matthew chapter 1. And in that 400-year period, a lot of things happened, but they're not recorded in our scriptures. It was the Maccabean period. Uh, The Greeks had ruled Israel, and they had ruled Jerusalem. And there was a particularly evil dictator from Syria who was part of the Greek empire named Antiochus Epiphanes. And uh, he ruled Jerusalem with an iron hand and meant to crush the, the, the Jewish people. He knew that the temple was the most sacred place to them in all of the world. And, and of course, remember the Jewish people don't eat pork? Well, he killed pigs and smeared blood all over the inside of the temple just to, just to provoke them and, and humble and, and humiliate the Jewish people. And then he made the temple off out of bounds. So there were rebellions and uprisings amongst the Jews in response to that one of the leaders of the Jewish people who rebelled against Antiochus. His name was Judas Maccabeus, and uh, his nickname was the Hammer. And, uh, and he fought against the Syrians and against Antiochus and drove them at least out of the temple so that the Jews could go into the temple to worship. That was a great victory, and it's uh, celebrated today as the Feast of Dedication, known to us as Hanukkah, which happens in uh, uh, December. So that was a great victory of liberation, at least partial liberation. And then uh, Judas Maccabeus had a a brother named Simon Maccabeus, uh, who was also a great warrior and a a fighter. And he led another rebellion and drove the Syrians, Greeks, out of Jerusalem, completely out of the city. That was another tremendous victory for, for the Jewish people. And on that occasion, for some reason, they celebrated it with the waving of palm branches. And in fact, they were, the palm branch became a symbol of a movement of liberation. And you know how we have symbols today of, of movements and that uh, things that appear on flags and posters. And, and uh, an evil one, of course, was the Nazi symbol. But uh, there, there are others today that uh, symbolize movements. And uh, so the palm branch was a, a symbol then of liberation from your oppressors. And, uh, and they minted coins with a palm branch imprinted on the face of the coin to remember this great victory and to remember who we are. When the Romans took over not too long later, they melted down all those coins and put Caesar's image on them, just to make a point. We're in charge here. Palm branches in our passage today represented the expectation of the Jewish people of liberation. That's why they were waving them. Because of the history of this moment we'll just leave that there. Let's talk about the young donkey. No, let's talk about Hosanna for a moment. Well, back to the young donkey. Can we have the Zechariah slide up here? Jesus fulfilled many prophecies in his lifetime of ministry. He didn't arrange for them all to be fulfilled, they just happened. He didn't arrange to be born in Bethlehem, but that was prophesied in Micah, and he was born in Bethlehem, and a prophecy was fulfilled. Uh, And and, and many other things about his death and his crucifixion and what they did to him, he didn't arrange those things. But this one he did arrange. It comes out of Zechariah chapter 9, and uh, it says simply this, and it was thought to be a messianic prophecy. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem, see, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. It says they didn't realize that moment and that prophecy till later, which we'll talk about in a moment. I can imagine the Apostle Peter having his devotional time sometime later, say six weeks later or something like that, and he happens to be reading in the book of Zechariah, and he's falling asleep as he reads some of his, you know, and then he comes to this verse and he reads that, and he goes, huh? Because he remembers this moment, this entry, the, the cult, humble, your king's coming, and he goes. And he runs out and he gets all the I'm just making this up but, but he runs out and he gets all the other disciples, and he says, "Guys, read this. Look at this." Another prophecy fulfilled. They realized it later. But uh, that, was, that was an amazing. And Jesus intentionally arranged this moment. He arranged for the donkey, sent them to get it in one of the other gospels. Bring the donkey, and he rode in, he arranged that whole thing. Why? He's making an announcement. "I'm your king." That prophecy, that's me. Did they really understand it? I don't think so. Not at the moment. But he was announcing something. You ever heard the phrase, a picture is worth a thousand words? That's a picture. And it's worth a thousand words. uh, As as he was announcing who he was, the Savior of Israel. A different kind of Savior, though, than they had been looking for. They were shouting, Hosanna. Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They were welcoming their king. But now remember all this contextual stuff. The meaning of the palm branches and the expectation of the people. There was a surging euphoria in the people of Israel that now was our time. We had Moses... We had Moses lead us free from the Egyptians. We had Gideon lead us free from the Midianites, Judges 6. We had David free us from the Philistines. We had Judas and, and Simon Maccabeus free us from the Syrians. And it's time for another liberation. And we hear there's a great prophet upon whom is the power of God, Jesus of Nazareth. And we hear he's coming to Jerusalem. And we're all here in Jerusalem, the whole two million of us or whatever it was, And so they cried out, save now, save now, which is what Hosanna means. Hosanna, Hosanna, save now, 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 now is the time. Let's get her done. We're all here. And that's what was happening in the crowd. Now, I don't fault the crowd. We would have been in the crowd too. And we would have had high estimation of Jesus. Hosanna is a good word. We sang it this morning, and I think we might be singing it again. And and what we're we're singing is literally, Hosanna means save now. It's a a reaching out to the Savior, because saviors save. And when when we say Hosanna, we're proclaiming him to be the Savior, and that's a very good thing. As long as we know what we're asking him to save us from. Not from the Romans. Not from the left wing, not from the right wing. From our sin, our human fallenness, our human brokenness, our human rebellion against God. We need to be saved and to sing Hosanna is a celebration of the Savior. And let's remember that as we sing it uh, from week to week as a church. So here he comes riding on a donkey's colt fulfilling Zechariah 9.9 Waving, they're waving palm branches, expecting a deliverer. There's a fever pitch of, uh, of expectation in, uh, in the city of Jerusalem. <coughs> and Jesus enters the city boundaries. That's where we stop the narrative at this point, uh, having laid out a few of those things to sort of set the background and what's going on in the story. Let's talk a little bit about a few practical things that hopefully we can take home from this story. Number one, beware chanting crowds and pop-up worshipers. We have, as humans, this this amazing ability to get caught up in in a rush of excitement, right? And, And the people sure were then. And it was a mixed thing. It wasn't. They were. They were. I think partially deceived, but they also recognized the greatness of Jesus. They did. And they, they just didn't have the whole picture yet. They didn't know about the cross and the empty grave that we know about. Uh, but they were. They were recognizing him and seeing him as a as a deliverer. And they were saying, "Save now. Now is the time." Uh, but we must beware of uh, of crowds and movements. And, and it happened then, and it happens even now. It happens, well, you know, online. Uh, there are whole movements of, of things. Things go viral. All of a sudden, it, it goes from 10 people to 1,000 people to 10 million people. Just things just spread, and everybody's caught up in something, but it's not always the right thing to get caught up into. So we must be careful. We must keep our, both of our feet planted on the gospel. Are you and I convinced believers with both feet planted in the scriptures? Or are we just fans of Jesus? There's a book out by a guy named Kyle Eidelman, maybe 10 years old, it's called Not a Fan. It's about discipleship. And it's encouraging Christians not just to be fans of Jesus, but to be deep down, well-rooted believers in Jesus who can't be shaken and blown about this way and that by the winds of popular opinion. Jesus spoke about a kind of seed that fell onto the shallow soil. And he says, It sprouted up with great joy in the beginning, but then when the hot sun came out, it wilted and went away and never lasted. Let us not be that. Let us be the seed that puts its roots down deep. I urge you, fellow Christians, to make sure your roots are going down deep into the gospel, into the scriptures, into the church, where encouragement and fellowship is, and into your hope in Christ. Beware of crowds. Number two, the Rubicon. Oh, here we go back to the Rubicon again. I suspect in a group this size that there are some people here who are standing on the shores of your Rubicon You're going somewhere and you've you've reached the river and you know, if I take the next step, there's no turning back. Do I cross over or not? It's probably going to completely change my life. It might have to do with a career decision. You might be wondering, should I ask her to marry me or not? She's a good woman and you're at your Rubicon. Or you might be the woman, and you're saying, should I say yes or not? He's a good man, and he's asked me. Or it might be, do I take on some area of ministry in the church that someone has said, they asked me if I would pray about it, and there's a a Rubicon to cross there. Or, you might see Jesus on the other side of the river and he's beckoning you to come and believe in him for the rest of your life and you're wondering should I cross over or not? Should I become a follower of Jesus or not? And your words might mean I don't know everything about Jesus but I think I know enough now it's time to cross over and declare my faith in him. By the way When you consider crossing a Rubicon in your life, two things quickly. Don't do it unadvisedly. Get some advice. Talk to some people about whatever this big thing is that you're contemplating. And get some wise advice into your life. Am I crazy or not? That's a good biblical thing to do. Secondly, don't do it alone. Julius Caesar didn't cross the Rubicon alone. He had thousands of fighting warriors with him, backing him up. And, uh, and so get a few people backing you up as well, praying for you. Tell them about this decision that you're contemplating and say, would you pray for me? Would you advise me? Would you hold me accountable, etc.? That's all important stuff in crossing the Rubicon. But think about where you're at. Is there a step that you're contemplating? Jesus came to the edge of Jerusalem, pondered it, and then he went in, as we know, changed the world. Thirdly, the passage of time. Can we put up the John 12, 16 slide there if if it's handy, Ryan? First, his disciples did not understand all this. John says, only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Uh, The only point here is that often in life, and this is true for all of us in many different applications. Many times in life, we go through events or things happen to us and we don't understand the full importance of them until years later. At first, we might have thought that was a disaster. Or we might think, I, I didn't feel the the, the the care of God at all. You know, why, why did he let that happen to me? If it was a loss or an injury or a sickness or... You know, something like that. And sometimes at the moment, we don't understand what's going on, but that doesn't mean that God's not there. Sometimes it takes the passage of time and the, and the coming into place of various other events, and then we look back and we go, Oh, now I see. God is good after all. I just want to remind you of that. Maybe you're at a place where your faith is a bit shaky because of that thing happening. Hang in there. Keep your feet in the Word and yourself in the fellowship of God's people and just wait. Some things become very clear and very wonderfully clear later on. Just as later on they realize the full impact of that day which they didn't fully understand at the time. I, I repeat, at first his disciples did not understand all this. And lastly, I want to leave you with a question. Could we have the uh, Luke 19.41 slide, please? Which says, only Luke records this. Matthew, Mark, and John do not. But Luke got it, and he wrote it down. Somewhere on this day, Jesus paused, and he had a view of Jerusalem, and he looked over the most religious city on the face of the earth. And he wept. Strange. Whenever we see Jesus weeping, it's best to take our shoes off because we're on holy ground. The tears of the Son of God should always stop us in our tracks and make us ask some questions. And I'm not going to answer this question for you right now. I'm going to pose the question and send you home with it to think about on your own or maybe talk about it at lunch or talk about it with a friend later. But the question is, this cluster of questions. What did Jesus see at that moment that no one else saw? What did Jesus know at that moment that no one else knew? Why is he weeping as he looks at Jerusalem, the most religious city on earth? Let's pray. Lord, what a strange day we've just been thinking about. Cheers and chants. Tears and a strange sorrow. We don't fault the crowd, they weren't evil, but we're humbled to think how easy it is to get things wrong or to only see part of the picture. Grant every one of us, I pray, clear-sightedness and pure hearts as we sing and worship today. Help us to see through the lens of the cross and the empty grave and to sing Hosanna in a whole new way. Amen.